Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. Today we're taking up a continuing subject, which is the reception of Ayn Rand in the academic philosophical world. The, re the reception of her ideas, I should say, not of her personally. <clears throat> As to her personally, she once told me a story which I think is very eloquent. She was speaking to a philosopher, probably John Hospers, whom we're going to talk about today, and he said that he could arrange for her to meet with a number of philosophers. Would she be interested? And she said, oh, yes, but why would they be interested in meeting with me? He said, oh, would they love to meet with you? After all, you know all about Hollywood and everything. She said, I almost cried. I hope you get why she had that reaction. She almost cried at the idea that professional philosophers who have the responsibility for the most important intellectual job in the universe would be wowed by the fact that she knew Hollywood celebrities and had lived in Hollywood and knew the movies. She was a screenwriter, you know, before um, she became a novelist. And, and then after The Fountainhead also, she was a screenwriter for a while. So this is not about her personally, but about her ideas. And what I want to do is defend Ayn Rand because the rap on her is that she's a comic book figure. She's not a real philosopher. Her ideas amount to look out for number one. She is unaware of philosophical subtleties and simply writes novels with uh, emotionally based champion, championing of look out for yourself and devil take the hindmost. Now she said a very interesting thing on the Phil Donahue show about that. Phil Donahue says to her on TV, they think you're crazy, you know, and she said, no, they want you to think that. And I think that that's a really good way to put it. It shows the cleverness and incisiveness of her mind right there. They don't really think that she is a uh, lightweight philosopher not, not a real philosopher, as they pretend. They're threatened by objectivism, and they want to attack it in the most effective way they can, and this is the way. Now, there's also, on the other hand, you know, to, Aristotle always wrote on the one hand and on the other hand. On the other hand, there is a profound methodological gulf between contemporary philosophers, contemporary economists, contemporary 
uh, English literature professors, contemporary psychologists, and the objectivist methodology of Ayn Rand. I don't want to minimize that because I think fundamentally, the deepest fundamental, it's the methodological difference that explains the glacially slow progress in understanding and being interested in objectivism that we see in the academic world. There's been some progress, but boy, you could sleep through 30 years and not really notice that progress. Over 60 years, you see that there's, there's some more grudging respect given to her thinking than there was in the late 50s and early 60s. But I am amazed at the lack of interest in, you know, I don't expect agreement with, but interest in very striking fundamental new ideas. So today we're going to look at the relationship between Ayn Rand and John Hospers. John Hospers was a professor of philosophy with some standing in the profession. He taught at Brooklyn College and anyone who taught in the New York area automatically had some prestige because that was the most sought after locale in uh, the country. You didn't want to be teaching at Slippery, Slippery Rock State Teachers College, which is a made-up example. Uh, you wanted to be in the center of civilization, which meant New York, um, particularly at that time, and to some extent still does. So he was a fairly well-regarded philosopher. He had this book published, An Introduction to Philosophical Analysis. It's a good, thick book, and it's published by Prentice Hall, a major, major publisher. And it um, was widely used as a textbook. It's actually... It actually has some merit. It actually is fairly clear and well done. So I'm going to approach her, Ayn Rand's intellectual battles with John Hospers, ending in a personal battle, by looking first at the correspondence between them. Actually, we only have Ayn Rand's or, we are only allowed to print Ayn Rand's side of the correspondence, and that alone in the Letters of Ayn Rand book that Mike Berliner edited, that alone goes from page 503 to page five sixty. So it's 60 pages of just her side of the correspondence, and she's responding to what he wrote. And it goes on over about a two-year period. The first one is from April 17, 1960, and the last one is from 
long one. I'm flipping the pages back. April 29th, 1961. So this is only one year and 12 days of correspondence. And they, as um, Hospers himself noted, they had many extensive personal conversations, that is, in-person conversations, which are not recorded. So these are the letters that she wrote to him when he was on sabbatical or otherwise away, and they couldn't meet personally. Although it starts out more formally, and I'm going to um, begin with uh, the beginning of this. I'm not going to read it all to you, but there's sections that are so interesting. Dear Professor Hosvers, thank you for your very interesting letter and for the clippings you sent me. Those clippings were reporting on a talk she gave, Faith and Force, the Destroyers of the Modern World, at his college, Brooklyn College. I am enclosing copies of my four radio broadcasts, which I promised to send you, and a pamphlet on the history of capitalism, which I think will be of interest to you. Let me start by saying that I was extremely pleased to meet you and to know that you were interested in discussions of this kind. I'm glad that you were reading Atlas Shrugged. For my part, I am reading your An Introduction to Philosophical Analysis. I believe that this will give us both a firmer base for future discussions. Um, <clears throat> so then she takes up some comments that he had made on her last radio broadcast. Let's start with the third one. No, the second one is very brief. Apparently, he said, you caricatured Kant. You didn't present him as he is. That was a caricature. She says only, I did not caricature Kant. Nobody can do that. He did it himself. Going on to the third point. You're right. Sometimes they, the teachers, seem to be concerned with minor or trivial points. Though she had criticized academic professors of philosophy. And he, he says, sometimes they seem to be concerned with minor or trivial points, especially when they employ technical language, as they must do, to make progress in their particular field of knowledge. She's quoting him there. Close quote. You imply this that this is what I would oppose. Far from it. I hold that no point is minor or trivial in any field of knowledge. I hold that philosophers, above all, must be as meticulously precise as it is possible to be. And I am, favor, I am in favor of the most rigorous, quote, hair splitting, where necessary. I hold that philosophy should be more precise than the strictest legal document because much more is at stake. And I am in favor of the most technical language to achieve such precision. But I hold that minor or trivial points cannot be studied ahead of their major or basic antecedents. I hold that precision in the discussion of consequences is worthless if it starts in midstream and leaves in a state of undefined, unidentified fogginess, those matters 
which are known to be the causes of such consequences. In other words, she believes in the hierarchy of knowledge, which, as I pointed out in my last episode, almost no philosophers do. They plunge in anywhere, take up anything, and begin with, quote, their intuitions now, and do not name their primaries. Ayn Rand, you know, had three things she called Rand's razor. If you've read Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, you know one of them, which was concepts are not to be multiplied beyond necessity, nor integrated in disregarded necessity. But there were two others that she talked about informally as razors. One was every philosopher should be obliged to put his philosophy into a fictional form as a novel. So we could see what it is to live by that philosophy. And the one that's relevant here is no philosopher should be permitted to speak until he's named his primaries. Name your primaries was a slogan of hers, just like check your premises, which is better known as one of her slogans. And her constant criticism of contemporary philosophers and of John Hossers, as we'll see, is they don't start at the beginning. They start with consequences, not with causes, with symptoms, not with the disease or the positive, the health. Point four. This is the point, page two of your letter, which puzzles me most. You object to my classification of logical positivists, a school that's now extinct, but was still a little bit around in 1960. You uh, object to my classification of logical positivists as witch doctors. Now, that's not just, you know, uh, uh, what's the word user? Bad language, you know, name calling. She had these two categories in For the New Intellectual, Attila and the witch doctor, the man of force and the man of faith. And this was uh, her talk, Faith and Force, the Destroyers of the Modern World. You object to my classification of logical positivists as witch doctors, and instead of arguments, you resort to the method of calling me an outsider and implying my total philosophical ignorance. I assume you did not intend to be insulting or offensive, and the reason for my assumption is the total context of my personal impression of you, of your letter, and of your professional reputation. So I am acting on that assumption, and if I am wrong in assuming it, please correct me. When I characterize or summarize any theory, I expect to be able to demonstrate the validity of my estimate to anyone in the field who cares to challenge it. Or, in colloquial terms, when I talk, I know what I'm talking about. Have I given you grounds to accuse me of ignorance or of rash judgments? If so, please name these grounds. 
the fact that I reach conclusions opposite to the generally accepted trend is not one of them. If you do not agree with me, please grill me on logical positivism. And if you prove me to be wrong, I will, glad, I will be glad to correct my views. But such proof will require agreement on the fundamentals of epistemology and on those very, quote, criteria of verification, quote, that's a positivist phrase, which you claim the logical positivists are studying and which I claim they are destroying. And then she uh, goes on to say, if you want to start, we have to start with Kant, because positivism is an offshoot of Kant. So, first, already I think we see that she doesn't say... Um, You, you say, I, I don't know technical philosophy and you, the philosophers have to be technical. Well, when they're technical, they, uh, they kind of wander off or they baffle me anyway. She doesn't accept the charge at all and says technical is great, but you have to have the base and that's what they don't have. It's like way ahead of Hospers. Now, they had a big fight over Sigmund Freud. Hospice was a Freudian. It's kind of hard to believe today that Freud was a big thing in 1960, but he was. And he wrote to her, and I think this is in a later letter. Yeah, November 27, 1960. You write, quote, as long as we accept the statement that there are causes for human behavior, why need one be so alarmed that Freud has discovered what some of these causes are? Close quote. She says, John, who is the one in this sentence? You or I? By the context, I assume that you were referring to me, and therefore I will say that here that you are guilty of psychological projection, to use a Freudian term. I was not, quote, alarmed by the discussion. You were. I did not jump to my feet and shout insults instead of arguments. You did. I disregarded it because I did not want to let Professor Lean, Martin Lean, a colleague at Brooklyn College, another philosopher, cause any trouble, confusion, or unnecessary difficulties in our relationship particularly when it was our last evening together and you were going away for almost a year. To be fully frank, he, Lean, had caused trouble already by arriving three hours earlier than expected and by deflecting the conversation away from the subjects which you and I wanted to, dis to discuss. I had promised you not to be offended by any inadvertent occurrence. So I did not consider myself offended by you that evening, and I do not consider myself offended by that line in your letter. I consider both as issues to be clarified between us. What happened to the Ayn Rand that jumps at the first sign of disagreement and bites your head off? 
Let me request the following. You know me well enough by now to know that I do not enter any discussion lightly, that I do not discuss subjects of which I am ignorant, that I have reasons for any judgment I form, and that my judgments will seldom coincide with the generally accepted ones. Therefore, in the future, please do not resort to assertions about my ignorance in place of an answer to my arguments. If we happen to disagree, an assertion of that kind is merely offensive and cannot prove your point to anyone, least of all to me. Now, I don't think we should go into Freud because it's getting late and I wanted to read some of the others. This is, this is really the crucial one. This is from January 3, 1961. Dear John, I shall now answer your letter of November 12th and your comments on Nathan, Nathaniel Brandon's lectures 1, 2, and 3. I shall take them in order. Lecture, and we're not going to do them all. I just want to get the, the main thing going on. Lecture 1. I was very happy to hear that you liked this lecture and that you agreed with most of it. This is on the fundamentals, lecture 1. Existence exists, <clears throat> A is A. I was very happy to hear that you liked this lecture and that you agreed with most of it. As to the points which you criticize, one, quote, injustice to Plato. Nathan classified the anti-reason trend of the 19th century as Platonism after he had defined the specific sense in which, quote, every man and every philosopher is either a Platonist or an Aristotelian, close quote. This observation is not ours, but we agree with it. That classification is based on the fundamental metaphysical epistemological conflict among philosophers. It is not an oversimplification. This is the essence. It is not an oversimplification. It is a wide abstraction. This is the objectivist epistemology in, disagreeing, in disagreement with the epistemology of the working philosopher. If one were to say that Marx is the direct consequence of Plato, that would be an oversimplification. But to say that Marx, Hegel, Kant, and others belong to the philosophical camp whose earliest and most famous exponent was Plato is an abstract summation in a context that deals only with the fundamentals they have in common. I disagree with your statement that Plato's, Plato's views come close to the truth. In quotes. After the, no, close to the truth, quote, after the metaphorical and allegorical elements are taken out. So Husserl must have said, Plato's statements come close to the truth after the metaphors and allegory are taken out. Now, how does she criticize that? How would you criticize somebody saying, well, and there are philosophers who said this, Plato uses a lot of stories to illustrate things, like the myth of Ur and the myth of the cave 
and the, the myth of Kronos and Saturn. But, you know, these are just like parables in the Bible. They're just to make a point, and the point is valid. How would you respond to that? How do you think she would respond to that? The same statement can be applied to any religion. Most religions can be interpreted as containing a great deal of truth if one decides to treat their doctrines as metaphors and allegories. But this would be a translation or an interpretation, and one could not equate it with the original doctrines. Would you treat Plato's world of forms as a metaphor? Would you regard his epistemology with abstractions as innate memories, with the ultimate mystic illumination that surpasses reason, as an allegory? If you did, what would be left of Plato? Except broad generalities that would apply to any philosopher. And then apparently, the, uh, I have to read this one because uh, I'll stop with this one. <clears throat> but it goes on like this for 60 pages. He must have used the phrase a philosophically pregnant philosopher in regard to Plato. <clears throat> she says, I do not understand the meaning or relevance of such an attribute as, quote, a philosophically pregnant philosopher, quote which you explain as, quote, has the germ of more fruitful ideas, close quote. I would assume that the criterion of what is fruitful in philosophy is truth. But that does not seem to apply. You say that Plato is, quote, more philosophically pregnant than Aristotle. Does this mean the following? Since Aristotle gave birth to a great many truths which require no further seeking, he is no longer pregnant, while Plato is still bulging with falsehoods. Therefore, he left something for us to discover and give birth to. If this is not what the attribute mean, means, what does it mean, philosophically pregnant? Parentheses. Oh, sure, I know damn well what it means in the language and context of modern philosophy. But I don't speak that language, and I don't want to be accused of misrepresenting the modern truth seekers, so you tell me. There's another great one here. Maybe we'll get it in another session. But... My reaction to this is, poor John Hospers is rolled over by Ayn Rand's intellect. She answers him six levels below what he says, where you're expecting an answer of, yeah, they're too technical. They don't need to be that technical. She says, no, we need technical but it has to be in terms of causal primaries. In a section I didn't get into really, uh, she said about Freud, we can use some of his discoveries about defense mechanisms, but what about his theory of the causes of emotions, which is 
the essential here for philosophy. He holds a view that emotions are innate, that man is helpless before them, that everybody is irrational. These are the things we have to deal with. You can't defend him by saying, oh, but his discussion of the tactics that men use to evade is very helpful. And, you know, I bet Hospice was thinking that she was going to say, no, these defense mechanisms, that's a bunch of hooey. Or I don't know anything about these defense mechanisms, but they don't sound good to me. But she, she knows all about them. She uses one against him. That's projection, you know, and says, again, it's the fundamental that's the issue, not the derivative. You, we're not oversimplifying. We're going to fundamentals. We're integrating on the basis of fundamentals. We don't jump in to discuss concretes without fundamentals. I knew Osper's a little bit uh, from being an objectivist in New York and lecturing at Brooklyn College to the objectivist group of which he was the faculty advisor and a few other contacts. And he could not grasp simple objectivist material. He would ask every six months, but what about the rational bank robber? I mean, the same example would be raised. You're in favor of rationality, but you're in favor of rights. What about a rational bank robber? He thinks a lot about how to rob the bank. And, you know, this would be answered for him by Nathaniel Brandon, by Ayn Rand, even Alan Gotthelf talked to him about this, but he couldn't get it. So the denouement <clears throat> was a lecture series, the American, I'm looking at the announcement of it in advance. The American Society for Aesthetics had a three-day meeting in Boston and Cambridge. Ayn Rand was invited to speak. And John Hospers was invited to be her commenter. And she gave, uh, does it say here? All right, a sense of life was her um, talk. I attended that talk. It uh, was in a, a medium-sized auditorium, not a huge auditorium, and th there were maybe two or three hundred people there. And I was in the middle, and I saw what went on. So after she gave her talk, John Hospers rose to take the podium to give comments on the talk, which is, you know, the way these things are done in philosophy. And I was only six months into objectivism, but I was shocked at his tone and attitude towards her. <laughs> he didn't give her respect. I remember one thing that he said, grained in my memory, surely Miss Rand doesn't expect us to believe that a landscape can convey a meaning, of, a view of the meaning of man's relation to existence. 
you know, as if say, please give me a break. After he finished, you know, maybe five minutes of such unhelpful comments, she got up to give the rejoinder, which is the way that these things are done. You speak, a commentator criticizes it, you reply, and sometimes there's further reply, but usually it's turned over to the audience. So she got up, and I'll never forget it. She was so nice. She was so gentle. I thought, he's just savaged her. And it's obvious why, even though I was only six months into the movement and did not know anything about sanction, granting moral sanction, or etiquette or politeness or that these were you know values i didn't i was a kid i was um i think i just turned 18. yeah i just turned 18 six months earlier and she was very gentle and i remember saying yes in a landscape it's easy to tell the view that the author has of the nature of existence and she gave a few concrete examples. And as she spoke, she was looking at him. He was seated on the last, in the front row, on the last chair on the left, her left. And so she said, yes, it's easy to tell. And she was very gentle and sort of patiently explaining to him in a very friendly way after he had just thrown her to the wolves, in my view, and I thought, what's going on here? Why is she doing that? She's being too nice to him, particularly because I could see him, right? And she's looking at him from over here, and he's turned like this in his seat. He's got his one leg crossed over the other, and he's looking out at the hallway, the side aisle and hallway. He did not even look at her. I was very surprised that he was acting that way because he was known to be friendly to her and to objectivism. He was actually giving a couple of lectures on ethics for the Nathaniel Brandon Institute in the basic principles course. <clears throat> and she's looking at him and he's looking away. Well, as it turned out, after that event, she broke with him. I'm sure she talked to him about it um, afterwards. I didn't know anything about what went on afterwards. I only saw what happened. So, in the end, he had to choose between his prestige as a philosopher talking to a group of people in a Harvard art museum and Ayn Rand. And he picked Harvard over Ayn Rand. Very sad. And uh, they never, as far as I know, which is not 100%. They never communicated with each other again after that 19, winter 1962 uh, occurrence. So uh, the moral 
of this and last week is Ayn Rand is good. These guys aren't. That's one of these oversimplifications that objectivists are accused of making. Uh, but I think the evidence is in that it, both on who's the good guy and her patience, her refusal to take offense when normally she would, her respect for him. There's a lot of compliments she pays him in the in the letters for the good parts of him and the uh, depth and incisiveness of her way of coming at issues leaves them behind. So I will close with that thought and hope to see you next week on HBTV. Thank you.